May I speak in the name of the living God, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. Amen. Can you imagine the excitement in Nazareth when they heard that Jesus was coming home? He and his disciples had been traveling throughout the area and news of what he'd been doing had traveled far and wide. Listen to this from Matthew's Gospel. This is Matthew 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and illness among the people. News about him spread all over Syria and people brought to him all who were ill with various diseases and he healed them. Large crowds from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea and the region across the Jordan followed him. So Jesus was famous, an international celebrity. As Luke says in verse 15, everyone praised him. And now he's coming home to Nazareth. And he does what he customarily did on the Sabbath. He goes to the synagogue. And since this was the synagogue that Jesus had grown up in, I imagine that when he looked around, he would have seen many familiar faces, all waiting eagerly to hear what their local hero, their their hometown boy made good, had to say. Jesus begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom from the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He sits down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue fastened on him. Now Isaiah originally wrote these words at a time when Jewish exiles were returning to Jerusalem from captivity in Babylon. Released, you may remember, by King Cyrus so that they could go back and rebuild the city and its walls and the temple. It was encouraging stuff when it was originally written. But five or six centuries later, in Jesus' day, the Jews are still prisoners and still oppressed, not by the Babylonians this time, but by the Romans. The Spirit of the Lord had certainly been with the prophet Isaiah. And it is true that he proclaimed good news. But the wonderful picture of restoration that he painted in this passage wasn't fulfilled in Isaiah's lifetime. Rather, his prophecy came to be interpreted in in messianic terms, that sometime in the future, a Messiah would come and would fulfill these things, freedom, healing, the end of oppression, the year of the Lord's favor. How long in the future? Well, she gives us the answer. Verse 21, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Imagine the excitement, the anticipation. What's going on? What's the word on the street? What's happening in the corridors of power? Has Israel negotiated a last-ditch deal for an orderly exit from the Roman Empire? Come on, Jesus, tell us. Now, of course, we know with 2,000 years of New Testament hindsight that Jesus was definitely not announcing political freedom from control by a foreign imperial power. Rather, he was announcing spiritual freedom from what Paul, the Apostle Paul, was later to call principalities, powers, the rulers of darkness of this world, 
spiritual wickedness in the heavenly realms. But even more importantly, Jesus was announcing that he himself was the one who would bring this about. That he was none other than the long-awaited Messiah promised by Isaiah centuries earlier. The Greek word that's translated freedom and free in verse 18 to proclaim freedom for prisoners, to set the oppressed free. That word certainly has the sense of liberty, but importantly, it also implies forgiveness. So the Spirit of the Lord had indeed come upon Jesus at his baptism, anointing him to proclaim the good news to the poor, to sinners oppressed, to sinners held captive by the crushing weight of sin. And that good news is that Jesus offers freedom through forgiveness. So that when God looks on the poor, he sees not sinners who deserve punishment, but forgiven people, free to enjoy God's favor. That's the good news the Messiah came to preach. It's the gospel as Christians have understood it for centuries. But how did the congregation in Nazareth react 2,000 years ago? Well, at first it seems that they were quite receptive. Verse 22, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. They must have been delighted that one of their own had come to them promising all these blessings. But then comes a kind of startling change of mood. Once the true implication of Jesus' claim to be the Messiah dawns, admiration turns to scorn and receptiveness to rejection. Verse 22 again. Isn't this Joseph's son? To which the proper answer, to quote Michael Wilcox in his Bible Speaks Today commentary, the proper answer is no, no, a million times, no. I just love that. It's just, you know, you think these are stuffy volumes, but wow, that's the way. It, it, no, no, a million times, no. No, Jesus is the Son of God. The voice from heaven at Jesus' baptism declared it. Jesus' family tree reveals it. The devil himself admitted it. And Dick told us all about it in the sermon last week. Jesus is the Son of God. But the people of Nazareth don't get it. Interestingly, Jesus knows what they're thinking. They're thinking, physician, heal yourself. In other words, don't come here claiming to be able to sort out our spiritual lives when you haven't sorted your own out. And they're thinking, why doesn't he do here in his hometown miracles like those we've heard he did in Capernaum? expected that their very own homegrown Messiah would give them preferential treatment by way of miraculous healings. And when he didn't live up to their expectations, they came to the conclusion that he was nothing special, just Joseph's son, a jobbing carpenter, a chippy. It's a case of familiar familiarity breeding, well, if not contempt, complacency, certainly, indifference, apathy. The people of Nazareth hadn't grasped the hard truth that God's mercy was not reserved for them in particular, or indeed for the Jews in general. It never had been. The Jews had been chosen by God as a people with a mission to be a light to the Gentiles. 
but they preferred to see themselves as God's chosen people, full stop. The prophets understood this. Jesus cites a couple of examples. The prophet Elijah was sent by God to minister to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. You can read all about that in 1 Kings 17. And then in 2 Kings chapter 5, we hear how God guided a leper called Naaman, a high-ranking military commander in the Syrian army, to the prophet Elisha to be healed. You see, the Jews' understanding of the Messiah was that he would come and rescue the Jews from oppression, bring down judgment on their enemies, and reinstate their nation to a glorious political future. But here's Jesus reminding them that God's mercy is available to Jew and Gentile, men and women, friend and foe. So after an initial favorable impression, Jesus ends up losing all credibility and authority. As he himself says, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. So what does this rather sad little story mean for us here, wherever we are today in this pandemic-oppressed world? Well, I want to suggest three things. First, we have an intriguing irony. The very suggestion that moved the Jews of Nazareth to murderous anger, namely that God's loving mercy is available to Gentiles as well as Jews, that's the same one that should move Gentiles to an overflow of thankful rejoicing. We have a Messiah. But the tragic thing is that so many of our workmates, friends, family members are pretty much unmoved by God's loving kindness. They're indifferent to God. Never think about him if they even believe in him. And these people, of course, are our mission field. Do you feel the joy of being blessed by God as a follower of Jesus? Do you really, really feel it? So much so that you cannot help reaching out with actions and prayers to those around you who don't yet know what great things our loving, merciful God can do and indeed already has done for them. I know this is the case for many of us in the church family. As we contemplate, I know, the implications of being a resourcing church team, of funding the hub, of, of supporting our pioneer curate, Matthew, and for, and for all those demonstrations of love in action in the time of COVID. Let's all keep praying for all these things. Because, and this brings me to my second point, the counterpoint to feeling the urge to reach out enthusiastically to all those around us, taking God for granted. The Jews, remember, took it for granted that they were worthy recipients of God's love and mercy simply because they were Jews. Do we similarly take it for granted that we're, we're going to get preferential treatment from God simply because we are faithful churchgoers in an age when church membership generally in the United Kingdom is dropping significantly. Well, I hope we don't feel like that. I mean, 
just being on the church electoral roll doesn't automatically make you a disciple of Christ. Jesus says, not everyone who calls, who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. So pray that we don't fall into the trap, and I guess it's the devil's trap, isn't it, of taking our relationship with God for granted. Which brings me to a final point. What a friend we have in Jesus, says the old hymn. A friend we can take our sins and our griefs, our troubles and our burdens to in prayer. A friend who promises to be with us always to the very end of the age. It's wonderful. But is there a danger of being too friendly? Of being over familiar with Jesus? like the people of Nazareth were, and which led them to having false expectations of him. What I mean is this. We are more than happy to accept all the good stuff that having Jesus as our friend gets us. His gracious love, his forgiveness, his righteousness in exchange for our sins, his willingness to intercede for us before the Father. But what about the, the tough stuff that he asks of us? Jesus says that if we want to be his disciples, we must deny ourselves and take up our cross. Hmm. I'm not quite sure I like the sound of that. He's not much of a friend if he's always going to be telling us what to do and think, is he? And what kind of a friend demands suffering and humiliation as the price of being a disciple? You see what I mean about false expectations? We think, we, we, we may think that our familiarity with our best friend Jesus entitles us to a bit of give and take, a bit of leniency, a bit of tolerance. And the devil works on these false expectations. So in traditional Garden of Eden style, we might say, did Jesus really say that you have to give up everything to follow him? Come on. He knows you've got commitments, family, home, career, security. He won't mind if you put him on hold for a bit while you get on with your life. He's your friend. Is this the kind of thing the devil sometimes whispers in your ear? So, if so, how should you respond? Well, as we heard last week, Jesus responded to the devil's taunts by quoting Scripture. So, perhaps we should do likewise. So, how about this? As it is written, and this is Proverbs 3, as it is written, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him, and he will make your paths straight. Amen.